Today I want to wrap up our uh, short series, uh, parenthetical series inside the book of Romans called Connecting the Dots of Romans. Uh, really looking at chapters 1 through 5, looking at some, uh, some significant terms that Paul uses that helps us understand what is it that is so significant about the gospel that helps us understand who God is, how he has saved us, and how we need to understand that salvation. In 1924, Adolf Hitler began writing what became his renowned work called Mein Kampf. And in this work that he penned, he telegraphed his satanically driven plans of genocide of the Jewish people, not just Jewish people, but many, many others, and his fascist world dominion. He let the world know what he planned to do. It was published a year later in 1925. When it first came out, most people ignored it. Some even laughed at it. But the world soon learned that for every word written in Mein Kampf, 125 people lost their lives during World War II. Never, never, never underestimate the power of words. Words are the very clothing of ideas. James says in James chapter 3, verse 5, our tongue that forms those words is like a tiny spark. It can set a great forest on fire. All it takes is the word of a judge. And a person either face a lifetime of imprisonment or freedom. A doctor can plunge a patient into great fear or bring great relief through a single word. A government official speaks and billions of taxpayer dollars instantly exchange hands through the power of the spoken word. This morning I want to wrap up some key words that the Apostle Paul has given us. Let me just remind you, the book of Romans, the reason we're walking through this incredible book is Romans is a, is a careful explanation, unpacking of our great salvation that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And we look at a number of key words that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 through 5. A couple of those so far was justification. Justification is an incredibly significant word. We see it all through the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament being explained. What is justification? In a very simple way, justification is God's gracious act whereby he declares believing sinners to be right with him. We looked at propitiation. That's not a word you hear every day. And yet, the Bible uses this. Paul uses this in Romans because we need to understand how important it is and how it relates to our salvation. Propitiation means this, that Christ's work on the cross whereby he satisfied God's holiness in order to extend grace and mercy to believing sinners. So justification, propitiation, are an act of God that happened the moment we place our trust in Christ. And what that means is that our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. They're forgiven completely. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, God says, I'll remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. So we are permanently and eternally made right with God through propitiation and justification. That means that we are fully pleasing, fully accepted, fully loved, fully secure by God. 
Well, today we're going to look at two more words, imputation and reconciliation. Uh, some more Asian words. It reminds me of a little boy whose, pa- whose father was a pastor. In all his life, he had been hearing his father teach on justification, sanctification, all the other Asians. And so he was ready. The day the Sunday school teacher asked the class, does anyone know what procrastination means? And the little boy spoke up. He says, I says I'm not sure what it means, but I know our church believes in it. So imputation and reconciliation, let's try to unpack these words this morning and what is the significance that God wants us to understand how they relate to our relationship with God and who God is. Remember, words are the clothing of ideas. And so what God is doing through this word is he's showing us, one, who he is, and he's showing us how great his love is for us through this word. Imputation, we see it used several times in Romans chapter 4, verses 3 and 23 and 24. Here's what it says. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He's talking about Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews, and he's answering the question, how was Abraham made right with God through propitiation or prior imputation? Here's what he says. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not for his own sake only, Paul goes on to say, it was also written that though there would be credit, uh, uh, pardon me, not for his sake only, it was written that <clears throat> it was credited to him, but for the sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him and are raised, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. In other words, Paul is saying that not only was this true for Abraham, but it's true for us as well if we place our faith in Jesus just like Abraham placed his faith in God. The word there, credited, is logizomai. It's an accounting term. What is Paul saying through this? He's saying this, that God sees Jesus' righteousness as being your righteousness when we believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus' righteousness has now become our righteousness because of our faith in him. That's what Paul is saying here. So if that's true, then how do we understand this? This word legizomai is a a technical term, but it's an accounting term. And the best way to understand this is something we've looked at already briefly, but imagine two ledgers or two records. The one record is the record of Jesus Christ. He lived a spotless, eternal, righteous, holy life. His record is flawless. There are no skeletons in his closet. There are no dirt that you can dig up about his past. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. The Bible says that he is the God-man, the perfect God-man, completely God, completely man, who lived a sinless life. But the other record is labeled Adam. And Adam's record is just the opposite. It is riddled with sin. It is bankrupt with sin. Adam's record has all kinds of skeletons in the closet, all kinds of hidden dirt, Now, why is that important? Because we are all children of of Adam, the Bible says. And as children of Abraham, we also have inherited his broken record. Paul told us in Romans chapter 5, he says, Because of Adam, he introduced sin into the world. Because Adam was the first sinner, we all then are going to experience death. He said, because of Adam, we're all sinners. He said, because of Adam, we're all going to experience God's condemnation. Why? Because we are the children of Adam, and we are under that record of Adam's record. Now, here's the problem. Because we're under that record, Adam's record, which is spiritually bankrupt, we recognize there is nothing we can do 
nothing we can do to clean that record on our own. Nothing we can do to save ourselves before God. It's a known fact, isn't it? Psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors around the world, for as long as man has been around, recognizes there is something deeply wrong inside of each one of us. In fact, we don't need a counselor or psychologist or psychiatrist to tell us that, do we? We know there's something deeply wrong inside of us. We struggle with a guilty conscience. We struggle, we know we've done things wrong. And oftentimes what we try to do is instead of trying to fix those things, we try to erase those things. Or we try to fill our lives with distractions, noise, and busyness so we don't have to think about the guilt that we feel when we're quiet. And we struggle. And yet the Bible says one day each one of us that have never trusted Christ will stand before God's judgment seat And he's going to look at our record, which is under Adam's record, which has our record as well. And we're going to have to give an account for how we lived our lives. And the reality is that day is going to come. What we live in right now may seem like reality, but it's really an illusion. In other words, it's not going to last forever. That one day we'll stand before God and give an account for our lives. And there's nothing we can do on our own ability, our own strength, to erase that record or clean that record. Or is there? The Bible says there is one answer, and that answer is God's imputation, God's work through Christ on the cross for us. You see, in the Bible, imputation is a two-way street, a two-way coin. On one side of the coin, you have, if you will, that God is counting to Christ our guilt. On the other side of that same coin is that God is also accounting Christ's righteousness to us. So he sees our guilt as being Christ's guilt, and he sees Christ's righteousness as being our righteousness. And oftentimes we think, well, yeah, Jesus suffered and died on the cross for my sins. But do we really think through just what his suffering is like on the cross? I want to take just a few minutes here and break down the aspects of Jesus' suffering, of how he paid for our debt on the cross, how God looked at him and took our sin and put it on his own son. There are at least four different ways that Christ suffered for our sin, four aspects of that. I'm indebted to Dr. Wayne Grudem as I was studying through this, and I thought, you know what, Dr. Grudem, you put this well in his book, Systematic Theology. He points out four main areas Four aspects in which Christ suffered for us. The first one is the physical pain of his death. The crucifixion, physically, by itself, was one of the most extremely painful and torturous ways to bring a a person to to death. It was designed in such a way that the person who was the victim of crucifixion would suffer within a hair's breadth of death and yet keep them alive to suffer the most agonizing painful, torturous death you could imagine. Before Jesus was taken to the cross, the Bible says that he was whipped and beaten. I won't go into all the details, but it says in the Bible that he was whipped and he was beaten beyond recognition, both in his body and in his face. He was beaten within inches of his own death. And then it says they took him to the cross. 
And the cross was first designed by the Persians or this form of execution back in 500 B.C. We read about it in Esther chapter 7, verse 10. It was designed to make the victim suffer slowly, the most shameful, painful death you could imagine, exposed and lifted for everyone to see in this agonizing death. But it was the Romans who took this whole idea of execution and developed it in a sinister and more dreadful way. They designed this crucifixion to take place in such a way, such a way that whether the victim breathed or moved in any part of their body, there was a searing, excruciating, inescapable pain. The victim wanted to die, and yet they were kept alive just enough to suffer the most heinous and miserable death you could imagine. What is amazing about this death, that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, that he died on the cross, was all predicted by the prophet Isaiah more than 700 years, hundreds of years before crucifixion was even thought of. It was predicted by God through the prophet Isaiah. And God says in Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our rebellion. Why did Jesus go to the cross? He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. He experienced the physical pain on the cross unmeasurable to anything you could imagine. But if we think the physical pain was bad, it was nothing close to the emotional pain of bearing our guilt on the cross. The truth is all of us have experienced the anguish of guilt in our own lives. We've done things wrong, right? Haven't you done something wrong? Some of you have, some of you haven't. <laughs> We've all done things wrong. We've felt the anguish, that deep, troubling anguish in our hearts. You ever notice when you do something wrong, it feels like everybody knows it? And you can't look somebody in the eye because you feel that guilt in your life. We don't like sin. We don't like the repercussions of sin in our own lives. And yet we've all experienced it in some way or other because it destroys relationships. It destroys our lives. It reminds us there's a deep awareness there's something wrong in us. And we don't know what to do about it. But we also know this. One of the reasons people don't want to come to church. One of the reasons you have sayings like this, you know, if I come in that church, it's going to fall in on my head. The reason why people believe that is because they believe somehow that God is going to punish them for their sin. They're not far from the truth. But the reality is this. As we grow closer to God, the more aware of our own sin we become and the more repulsed we are by it and the more fearful we are the punishment we deserve for that sin. So if we're that moved by sin, for Jesus, sin was something far worse. He lived a sinless and holy and pure and righteous life. And though he was tempted by sin, he never once gave in to it. He never once had an evil thought, never once had an evil motive, Never once did a wrong thing or said a wrong word. Sin was completely foreign to his character. Sin was to Jesus as putrid as gangrene is. He was completely repulsed by it. Why is it that God is so, hates sin so much? Why is it? Because God knows what sin does in our lives. It brings death. It brings suffering. It brings grief. 
It brings sorrow. It brings separation. It destroys our lives. And so God has an utter hatred for sin. Yet Jesus willingly took on all the sin that he so hated so that we could be forgiven. All that he hated most deeply, he took on the most fully. Isaiah 53, verse 6, The Lord has caused the iniquity, and the word thereavon means perversity, depravity, the sin of all of us. God has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that Jesus became a curse for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God, Paul says that Jesus literally became our sin. He took and became our sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. The mental and the spiritual pain that Jesus bore for the guilt of our son, the cross, was far more than the physical. But if that's not enough, there's the third aspect of his suffering. And that is the pain of rejection. We read in the Gospels the very night that Jesus went, uh, before he was arrested, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he was there, he took Peter, James, and John, the closest apostles of all the twelve, he took them with him. And it says that Jesus told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. What Jesus needed during that time is what all of us long for when we're in a place of grief, in a place of sorrow. We want comfort and support of others. And yet we read in the Gospels that the disciples, his closest friends, failed him in the time of his greatest need. They were so overwhelmed with mental and emotional and physical fatigue, they slept. They were not there to support Jesus. They failed him at a time that he needed them most. Not long after this, it says that a mob came to arrest Jesus. At that point, all of his disciples abandoned him. I don't think there's anything worse, is there, than feeling isolated, alone, and rejected when we're hurting the most. And sometimes, let's be honest, our own actions might bring on the rejection of others. But there was nothing in Jesus, all that he did and all that he said, there was nothing deserving of the rejection that he experienced. Nothing. And what is amazing about this is this, that in all the rejection from his closest disciples, from all of his disciples, from the world, it says in John chapter 19, or pardon me, John 13, yet Jesus loved his disciples to the very end. But the greatest rejection, the greatest pain that he felt was when he endured his heavenly father's rejection as he bore our sins. You see, the Bible says that God cannot look upon sin. It says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. The worst pain of all that Jesus endured was the rejection of God, his heavenly father. Because at that moment, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus literally became sin and experienced the pain of God's rejection. There's a fourth aspect to pain, the pain of bearing God's wrath. Again, the Bible predicted this as well. 
in Isaiah chapter 53. And for reasons that we don't fully understand, except for the grace of God, Jesus stepped out of eternity, clothed himself in humanity, was born a babe, lived a full life, and chose willingly to go to the cross for our sake, to endure the very wrath of our Father, our Heavenly Father. Why? Because of God's grace. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says, By the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for all people. Isaiah 53 anticipated this. Hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified, it says in Isaiah 53, verse 10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Why was Jesus crucified? Because that was the vehicle, that was the way in which God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ for the punishment of the sins for all mankind. Isaiah 53 to verse 12 says this, he, was, he poured himself out to death and was, a, was numbered, that word there is accredited, the same word that in Hebrew is the idea of Greek, that it was legizomai, it was accounted to, with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says this, that when that punishment, that wrath is poured out on Jesus, that at the right time when God had unleashed all his wrath on Jesus, it says that God was then satisfied. And at that very moment in time, Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. He was saying that God's wrath is now satisfied against the sin of mankind, propitiation. And now suddenly Paul's words take on a whole new meaning when we begin to look through the lens of the crucifixion. When God says, or when the Bible says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, we didn't deserve Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And yet the Bible says, by the grace of God, he came. He suffered physically, he suffered mentally, he suffered emotionally, he suffered spiritually in ways far beyond that we could ever begin to comprehend. And he did this all for us. Imputation. The very guilt of Jesus was seen, or our guilt was seen as Jesus' guilt. But also the other flip side of that coin is Jesus gave us his righteousness, that God now sees Jesus' righteousness as our own. So God only took into account our sin on Jesus, but he also took into account Jesus' righteousness and put it on us. So God now sees Jesus' righteousness as ours. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, the Apostle Paul could say this, By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and this is what he says, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. How did we get the righteousness of Christ? Through our faith in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul says this, that his goal in his entire life was to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, of my, own, of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Can I ask you a question? How is it that we're made right with God? By keeping the law? No, James says very clearly in James chapter 2, verse 9, he says, if you, if you keep the whole law, but you fail in one part, you're guilty of breaching the whole law. It's not by keeping the law. The law was never designed 
in order for us to be saved. It was designed to reveal our sin, not to remove our sin. It was designed to point us to the Messiah, the final, the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sins. How are we saved? We're saved by faith alone, by trust alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. You ever thought about why it is that God chose the vehicle of being made right with him to be faith, an attitude of faith? You ever thought about that? Why faith? Because faith is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When we come to Christ in faith, what we're saying is this. I'm not depending on myself. I'm not depending on my abilities. In order to be right with God, I'm totally dependent, totally surrendered to Jesus Christ as my Savior. I know I cannot save myself. I know I cannot be good enough. I know I'll never be good enough. But that I must totally depend through trust, through faith, through belief in God alone. And so God chooses the vehicle of faith because it's the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. And so what that means, the moment we're saved by faith, is that Christ's righteousness is permanently written on our record. And God will never change his mind. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, their sin and lawless deeds I will never, I'll remember no more. This really came home to me this last week. I was pouring through the life of Abraham, just reflecting on his life and my devotions. I came to uh, Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26, it says Abraham dies. He lived a ripe old age, a man satisfied with life, it says. But then in chapter 26, God is now passing on this covenant, the covenant of the blessing, the covenant of the land, the covenant of the people, to Isaac, his son. And he said something about Abraham that the moment I read that, I went back and I read it again. I said, did he really just say what I thought he said? And he says this in Genesis chapter 26, verse 5. God is looking at Abraham's life. And he's reflecting on his character. And here's what he says about Abraham. Isaac, I want you to know something about your father. Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge. My commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And when I read that, I thought, wait now, hold on just a minute. Abraham did not. There were times that he failed miserably. He lied in order to save his own skin. He tried to expedite God's promise in his own strength. That really messed everything up. He was not perfect. He did not obey God completely. He did not keep God's charge completely. He did not keep God's commandments completely. He did not keep God's statutes or laws. What is he saying here then? Abraham believed and was credited to him as righteousness. That God saw the very righteousness of God himself had now become the righteousness of Abraham, though his life was neither complete nor consistent and following God. What a powerful picture of this righteousness that has been imputed to us. Someday, as a believer, will stand before God and God will say, why should I let you into my heaven? And what are you going to say? Well, God, because I went to church. God, I was such a wonderful person. When you saved me, I became this saint. It was unbelievable. Not. Well, God, because... No, the only reason... The only answer we can give is because, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins. 
And the only way I can know I can be right with you, according to your word, is by placing my trust in you. I have no righteousness of my own. I have only brokenness to offer God, not wholeness. And in his grace, he gave me the gift of his righteousness, right standing with him. And so one day we'll stand before God as believers and we'll know know that we are forgiven completely. All those closets bearing all those skeletons, all that dirt that can be dug up about you, God says, I'll remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. I forgive you. And now you're righteous, not because of your own, but because of my son's righteousness, I'm giving it to you because of your faith in me alone. Aren't you glad that God didn't include works in keeping our salvation? I am. Because you know what? If we started to include works in our salvation, I would be out in a moment's notice. You know why? Because there's always going to be somebody better than you. Somebody that can outlive you in terms of the way they live. It's not based on works. It's based completely on our faith alone in Christ. Imputation. That God gives us Christ's righteousness as though it belonged to us. He takes our guilt and puts it on Jesus as though it belongs to him. Pretty significant word, isn't it? Pretty powerful. One more word, and then we'll close our time here. Reconciliation. Simply put, reconciliation means restoring a relationship, one from enmity now to friendship. One from enmity now to friendship. And I think one of the most incredible barriers I've seen time and time and time again that breaches relationships, that destroys them, is an unwillingness to forgive and an unwillingness to reconcile. An unwillingness to forgive and an unwillingness to reconcile. I read this last week about a frontier preacher. He was preaching against, the, against hatred. And he asked all those that he was preaching to that if any one of them had been overcome by the sin of, of hatred and overcome that, would they please stand? He was shocked to find one elderly gentleman stood up. And the preacher asked him, well, how can you stand? And the man said, all those skunks who done me dirt, all those scoundrels I hated, they're all dead. They're all dead. You cannot outlive your enemies and find reconciliation. What I find is amazing about the God of the Bible is this. If anyone has the right to choose not to forgive and choose not to reconcile, it is God. When Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, God would have been perfectly within his right to say, you know what? You're done. I'm not going to reconcile. I'm not going to forgive. But what we see with Adam and Eve and all the way through the Bible is we find that God is a God who loves to reconcile, loves to forgive, loves to turn enmity into friendship, not only with us and him, also with each other. When Adam sinned, we don't read in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam said, oh man, I messed up, I need to go find God and reconcile this. What we find is Adam hid himself. He tried to hide from God, but it was God who sought out Adam. Why? Because that's the very heart and character of God. So we read in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 that Jesus came, why? To seek and to save those who are lost. 
Do you know the fact that you're here today? And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the reason you know him is not because you sought him. It's because he sought you first. And he showed you his love, his forgiveness first. Though God would have been perfectly right to wipe us out, he chose not to. He chose to forgive us. He chose to love us. So the Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save those that were lost, to remove the enmity between God and man and restore a right relationship. So Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For if we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through, through the death of his Son, much more have been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God not only chooses to forgive you, but he also chooses to give you eternal life in that right relationship with him. And that happens the moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So what is God saying through reconciliation? When God says, I want to reconcile with you, I don't want us to be enemies anymore. What he's saying is this, what you wrestle with in your life is a fear of rejection, ultimately a fear of God rejecting you. And reconciliation is God's answer to our fear of rejection. Because we have been justified through our faith in Christ and God declares us righteous, and because God has imputed his, our sin on his son and his righteousness on us, God now sees us as righteous and sees us as belonging to him. And God wants you to know that you're now forever reconciled with him. Do you know what that means? How many of you, let me just, you don't have to raise your hands, but just how many of you this last week, you blew it? I mean, you really blew it. Nobody knows it, but maybe you do. Maybe your wife knows it. I don't know. Maybe your husband knows it. I don't know. She does. <laughs> but you blew it. And what's the first thing that happens when we sin, whether intentionally or unintentionally? but we know we've really messed up. What's the first thing we do? Well, the last thing we want to do is go to God with it. But there's no way I can bring this to God. I'm so ashamed. I'm so guilty. I feel so bad. And yet the Bible says that God has opened the door through reconciliation, that no matter how terribly or how low we've sinned, God always invites us to come to him and say, will you ask for forgiveness and I'll give it to you. I don't want there to be any enmity between you and me in our relationship. Maybe the best way I can explain this is maybe from a parent's perspective. Growing up, we had two amazing daughters that we got to raise. And I tried to teach them along the way that I didn't want anything to get in the way of my relationship with them. In fact, I remember my oldest daughter saying once, Dad's always saying, will you forgive me? Dad you know, is always saying that I messed up, will you forgive me? And the reason I did that is because I did mess up. But as a parent, I recognized I wanted nothing between me and my daughters. I wanted us to have a reconciled relationship. There were times that I did things like, oh, that was dumb. Or I said things, oh, that was stupid. And I'd go to them and say, you know what? I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I did that. Will you forgive me? I always did that. I still do that. Why? Because I don't want us to have any enmity between us. I want to have a reconciled and whole relationship. 
That's what God, your Heavenly Father, does with you. But He doesn't make mistakes. It's you're the one who makes mistakes. And God says, I want you to know the door is always open, 24-7, 365. No matter what you've done, I'll forgive you when you come to me. But I want you to know that it's always open, always welcome. Why? Because I don't want there to be any enmity between you and me. I want us to be reconciled. And God made that possible through his son, Jesus Christ. So the Bible says this. We can now come before God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you come before God and say, Lord, I messed up. He's not going to go, you know what? You are a terrible scoundrel. You no good sinner. No. He says, I'm so glad you came to me, my child. And I forgive you. I want there to be reconciliation in our relationship.